Welcome. Pull up a chair, fill your mug, get comfy, join us at the table for the most unusual tea party. Here's your host and graphologist, Teresa Abram. Welcome to the Tea Party, where we talk handwriting and people. I'm Teresa Abram, your host and handwriting analyst, and I help people make the right hiring choices on both sides of the hiring process. In this episode, I welcome back to the show Robin Dreek, founder of The People Formula, speaker and author of multiple books, including my favorite, Sizing People Up. He is the former chief of the FBI Behavioral Analysis Program. He is a master spy recruiter. He is a treasure trove of information and has fantastic stories, along with an incredible depth of knowledge for what it takes to be a leader. Now, before we take a look at how Robin's writing has changed over the last year, we explore what it means to be a leader rather than someone who simply wields power or is the winner of a popularity contest. This is a timely discussion that touches on how each one of us can lead on an individual level by considering our actions and making the choice that is beneficial not just to ourselves, but to the betterment of our communities as we work towards bridging the gaps between differing opinions. Remember to check out Handwriting PI's YouTube channel Thank for you, the Teresa, full video. Thank you, Teresa, and it's very high and praise coming note, from another very approachable, easy-to-get-along-with person, and I apologize so thank you. So with that warning, let's hear from one of the most approachable and genuinely helpful individuals I have had the pleasure of meeting. Oh, you'll never, you'll never even you know, acknowledge it. And then to have a response from you in like five minutes just totally blew me away. Same thing on this one. You're like, hey, let's do this again. I'm like, yes, I love that. That's fascinating. You know, it's, you know, having that, you know, non judgmental curiosity about everything and everyone in the world is uh, the way to roll. Uh, keeps, keep shields down, trust up, and life is easy. Exactly. I love that. Keep shields down and trust up. You know, the last time that we talked, we're sort of in the phase of, we're in this together. And as COVID has progressed, and fast forwarding a year later, we're no longer in that. And the situation with COVID has become really a toxic polarization, where in family groups and work groups and cities and nations, even we have two really diametrically opposed groups. And when I'm thinking about this, I'm like, who can help me understand this? How can a leader this toxic polarization that is happening around, you know, COVID vaccinations and masks and some of the really wild conspiracy theories. Yeah. And it's a great question when, you know, you kind of send it to me ahead of time. Thank you. Cause I really wanted to reflect on that a little bit. It kind of goes, there's, there's never one answer for anything, but I'm going to, I always like trying to boil things down to the simplest understandable thing possible. And so first you mentioned the key there, leadership. And let's define leadership first. Leadership is about being of service to others. And it's in its wholesome form, leaders are about accomplishing goals, missions, and objectives by being of service to a greater whole. That's it. Selfless service. Power is the dichotomy of leadership. And power is self-centered. Power is about popularity. Power is about rallying people around you about what you want in your life. So leadership basically is about others. Power is about self and control. And so with that framework, now let's look at messaging. And it becomes starts to become really, really clear. The world becomes polar when people are no longer servant leaders, but they're 
collecting power because power is bifurcating of opinions. Power is trying to rally people around one standpoint rather than serving a greater whole. And now when you put that in conjunction with media, which only survives by selling ad space, and the only thing that sells ad space is, is popularity, is inflated stories or, or hyperbole, you know, whatever it is, it's that's what that's what works. I mean, even right now, you know, where we're dealing with, you know, our pullout from Afghanistan, the most amazing thing to me with that tragedy that's going on, if you flip through all the news networks, you have some news networks are saying how the Biden administration is totally failed this while they're still covering the events. Another news network is only covering a little bit of the event, not even mentioning Biden or anyone in the administration. Uh, you know, so it's again, why? Because they're trying to sell ad space, they're trying to appease a base, and the world has become very polar in a lot of these opinions because I, it's social media and media in general is very divisive in the world right now because there's too much of it, too many people are, are trying to vie for your, your attention. And so if you look at leaders, leaders bypass that, they focus on what's the objective. And the objective really should be really simple, and it really is save lives. Next, you save the economies of the world and you move forward. And how do you do that? Well, it, that's, all that's pretty plain, plain and pretty simple. If you remove all the, you know, all the other garbage that goes along with it, uh, I think it's pretty simple. At the same time, you do need to empower people with choice because choice is about freedom. You know, yeah. But if information is provided without a bias and a confirmation bias, people are then free to make a choice, which might be helpful to everyone. So- there's my convoluted two cents on it. But yeah, the world is, you know, matter of fact, one of my next books and articles I'm thinking of, of just the title of it is just lead, you know, just stop being a, a me former and start being an informer and just lead. It has become difficult. I and mean, what you're talking about with social media, it's like people have their opinion and they're going to find those and surround themselves with those who agree with their opinion. And so that shield goes up, like you were saying just in the beginning, right? Where shields down, listen in. It has become a society where it's shields up and I don't trust you if you don't have my opinion. Yep. So how does a leader actually get through to somebody or how do they, they get around that inherent bias where you don't share my opinion, so I'm not going to listen to you? You know, I, I, go, I reflect on my three pillars of leadership, which is, and I mentioned them kind of already, and that is number one is leaders accomplish goals, missions, and priorities. And so we, they have to have a very clear understanding of what it is they're trying to accomplish. The second one is in order to do that, leaders have to create a circle of trust. They have to create trust with the people they're engaging. And part of that trust, and, and Joe Navarro, my good friend, just wrote the book, Be Exceptional. He talks about leaders and the exceptional people create psychological comfort for those that surround them, because only when you're in psychological comfort, can your shields come down. And finally, in order to do that, you know, leaders need to be a resource for the success and prosperity of others without that expectation of reciprocity. So you're doing selflessly because that's what leaders do. In order to create that kind of psychological comfort, the first thing a leader cannot do is judge anyone. You have to seek to understand non-judgmentally, have that non-judgmental curiosity about why someone has a particular point of view, why they have a certain particular opinion, and just seek that out without judging it. 
And then you start asking what I call the discovery questions. You know, hey, if you're trying to protect your friends and family, uh, if you want to have restaurants open, if you're trying to, you know, increase your own personal business, what kind of behaviors do you think you need to do in order to do that? Because I, I fell into the, the trap many, many years ago. Matter of fact, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary 9-11. I think we even talked about it last time we were together. You know, I fell into the trap of every day feeling very overwhelmed because I thought I had to save the world. The entire world, you know, is looking at you to do something to save the world. Because in New York City, you know, when you're watching people jump from the towers and, and you're having kids standing on the streets, you know, holding up signs, please, please find my daddy, please find my mommy. It's very overwhelming. But the other thing leaders need to recognize is leaders can't change the world. All they can start doing is making a difference one person at a time. And the way you start doing that is by seeking their thoughts and opinions, talking in terms of their priorities, validating them without judging them, and giving them choices about how to move forward. Um, you start doing those things, the shields are coming down. Because I, I, mean, I just look at my own little town here. I'm in, I'm in Virginia. And as soon as the Delta variant started breaking out, you know, CDC in the United States came out with recommendations. And I mean, we were at a point where no one was wearing masks anymore. Everyone I know either had a vaccination or didn't care. And so they're surrounded by other people that are vaccinated. So it didn't really matter. And all of a sudden, the Delta variant starts going up. And you start seeing people making choices. I'd say right now, um, most places I go into, employees are masked back up. And I'd say about three quarters, 80% of people going into the establishments are masked back up. It's And no one's telling you to do it. Everyone just kind of one person at a time, you know, just, you know, I can't affect the world. I can't get emotionally hijacked by that. Right where I'm at here, what difference can I make to make my neighbors feel more comfortable? What can I do to inspire them to want to get out and engage? How do, how do I keep someone feeling healthy and worthwhile and valued? What I love about what you just said there, Robin, is because when we think leadership, we think, oh, right, leader of our country, leader of the city, leader in the business community, but we're all leaders in our own way. Whether we're the leader of our family, whether we're the leader of our community, but we're all leaders of somebody. Sometimes it's just we're the leader of our kids. And so the choices that we make do have an impact yeah. on somebody else. And even, and even at that high level, when you say leader of the country or you say leader of a, a city or a governor or something, what do people focus on? They notice when you do not take that granular actions. In other words, when they put out a law and a promulgation, but then they don't adhere it to themselves, what are the people focused on? Their lack of one-on-one -on -one granular leadership. We're not, not setting, so they're saying you can't travel, but all of a sudden they're taking vacations. They say you got to be masked up, you know, if you go into public settings, but yet they are not. You know, so people always pay attention to what are you doing at that grassroots granular level to demonstrate leadership by example, because that is not leadership. That's called power, and so because they're not, they're taking actions that benefit themselves, and they're not doing it for others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That really hits home uh, where I live. Our, our premier, his cabinet did exactly that, where everybody was told you can't travel. There's no get togethers, you can't even mix families or houses. And his cabinet was flying to Mexico for Christmas. Teresa, and, and here's the thing about it it's everywhere. You know, I mean, I, I, I tell that anecdote, and everyone can place people inside of that anecdote. And so that is an anecdote and a behavior of someone who is seeking power and popularity. They're not acting in the best interest of others. They're acting in the best interest of themselves. That's about power, not leadership. So now you can actually understand and clear for yourself who is a leader and who isn't. 
You know, so now because people should only really if you're looking to move forward and get shields down and, and trust up, like I said, and I actually literally came up with that on the show for you, uh, you know, you have to one, follow a leader and two, be the leader because that's what it's all about. Because, again, it's it's this dichotomy. You know, there's a pull because the popularity gets the whole dopamine going. Leadership gets the oxytocin and serotonin going, the long-term relationship stuff. And, and what I think is really fascinating about that, when you're talking about it, to me, it's like the leader, as long as they're keeping their big picture, like you were saying, we want to save lives. That's, that's our goal. We want to save lives. And the other one that you mentioned is the economy. Um, I know where I lived, it was pitted one against the other. And, and, and so here's where leaders step up. And we've seen this step up. So, and, and this is where you actually know when you're, so if you have a, a government official, I won't call him leader, a government official that comes up with, with this saying that, well, we're going to lock everything down, but we have no plan to move the economy forward. Well, there, there's someone just that creates problems and no solutions. That's not a leader. Now, what have we actually seen? We have seen a lot of individual companies, restaurants, and industries get exceptionally innovative. Because here's another thing of human beings. Human beings are never as innovative when they have prosperity as when they have deprivation. We are genetically coded to deal with less. And so whether it's a company, an industry, or us as individuals, as a tribe, or as a family, when we have less, we really get working. We really get innovative. And so we are, I mean, how my industry as a speaker and an author has changed dramatically and you either kept up or you didn't, you know, podcasts have soared because people are taking advantage of that. And if you don't keep up with that and what people are craving and being innovative with unique ideas like tea parties. Um, and so when we have deprivation and we have lack of things, the leaders step up with the innovative ideas that are serving a greater good again. So take that step back when you see it and assess who is actually leading. And leader, the leaders are truly the innovators. The innovators. Oh, I love that. That is another great point to say, you know, just for a personal check to say, does this person, are they innovative? Are they bringing problems or are they bringing solutions? Good way to put it. Problems are solutions. And the other thing that leaders gain their energy from, and this is the science is so solid in this, you know, Simon Sinek writes about it a lot, you know, in his books, Leaders Eat Last. And that is when you are a service to others and you demonstrate gratitude our brains reward us so massively. As a matter of fact, in most of the leadership books I've read, without fail, there's always been at least one chapter or a section of chapter dedicated to, believe it or not, Alcoholics Anonymous in the 12 steps. And the 12 steps in, in the 12th step in AA is basically, in order to maintain your sobriety, you must be of service to others. And is a massive thing because our brain makes that connection and our brain says this is good for us and it gives us the energy to continue on our, our own path is when we're of service. Again, that's why great leaders that are of great service, they find that energy from within because they are continually of service. Yes, that is really, really powerful. And part of what you said in there was just that gratitude and appreciation for the workforce, for the other person. Absolutely. That's part of service is just recognizing, hey, you're doing your part and it's supporting me. Here's, you know, so I, I gain little tips and tricks in my own life um, to keep me going, you know, because again, work, you know, being an extrovert working through COVID, you know, at home all day long um, and, and walking, and it gets challenging. So one of the things, you know, creating checklists. So here's my daily, I, I create my checklist every single night and I've actually added at the bottom of my page, I actually have a gratitude section where I actually write down every day what I'm grateful for. 
Um, because when we demonstrate and we can recognize what we're grateful for, that's where we gain our energy. And the more that we can recognize it, the more that we can see it again and again. If we start looking for it, we're going to get our confirmation bias. Absolutely. Because if you're constantly look, if you're looking for it, you're going to see it. And when you see it and has the second part too, validate it. If, if you're grateful for someone, reach out and say you're grateful. I mean, a couple, as I know you follow me on a lot of stuff I do, I, mean, I literally reached out for uh, one of my friends. This was years and years ago when I went through Marine Corps Officer Candidate School, a guy named Birchfield. Um, he did the most amazing thing where he kind of took control of us as a platoon when the drill instructors didn't show up to get us to the next evolution. And we're like, Birchfield, what the heck are you doing? And he goes... And they were literally lining him up to kick him out. You know, no longer, he wasn't going to be a Marine because he was failing in some things, I guess. And he's like, well, better have a tiger by the tail than have to kick a mouse in the butt. And he literally got it from point A to point B by himself. No one had ever done it before. And he actually saved himself in that one moment. And I, and I remembered it. I tell that story to so many people and I've told it for like 35 years. And so I tagged him on LinkedIn with it. And he's like, Wow. You remembered that from back then. I said, you made a difference in my life and a lot of other people's lives. I wanted to let you know, and I'm grateful for you and that one lesson so many years ago. What did that cost me? Nothing. So I think demonstrating gratitude is one way a leader can always um, maintain your energy level and positivity. For sure. And you know, the thing is, is because in our own heads, we can go through what we've done wrong. Oh, yeah. We're not going to remember the things that we have influenced somebody in, in a positive way. Sometimes we're not even aware of it, just like your story, where he wasn't even aware of the impact he had on you. Uh, and so such valid, you know, validation, and just that affirmation to say, hey, you know, this, this affected me. And I, I felt it. I saw it. It affected me. It changed me. And then that on the deepest level is what we're all looking for, right? It's just that yeah. knowing that we've made a difference. Yeah, we because that's how we gain our value. I mean, that's our, our, you know, it's funny, you know, reading the, you know, Viktor Frankl's book, uh, The Meaning of Life, you know, it's about finding your purpose. And and really, there's no great, you know, he writes about there's no great massive scheme, you know, to the purpose of life is just living, okay. being of service. That is pretty much it. You know, just keep moving forward every single day, be of service. And boy, when you get a moment where someone does validate you, even in the slightest way, you got you got to record it. You got to put it down because you will have days when you're feeling completely useless. I I have them. I you know when 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 you live behind a screen and you put out content and you're like, is any anyone even listening out there? Am I you know why bother you know? And then and every now and then you'll you'll get some uh, some very nice feedback that'll just be the greatest shot of thank goodness my life has a meaning <laughs> today. Write it down, print it out, and uh, matter of fact, years ago I I I have what I call my happy book. And this is where if you get a, a thank you card, an email, a letter, a note, a text, something, you know, I keep recording these things down and I have this nice big fat book that I've kept since 2005. Yeah, it's so important just to keep track of that because again, we can lose it. Before we get into your handwriting, I wanted to talk to you really quickly about something that you had mentioned in one of your books. Basically, what you said in the book is that rationality is the brick and mortar that creates a firm foundation of trust. Whereas emotion builds a foundation of sand. And I'm curious whether you still feel that rationality is king. So first I have to define trust and trustworthiness as a predictable behavior. Because people like to think, and they mis misidentify, we probably talked about last time, of liking someone and equating liking someone to trusting someone. And it's not liking someone and not trusting someone. And, and you can't really equate the two together because, I mean, they can overlap, but they don't have to overlap. 
Um, but it, it's the trust factor comes down to predictable behavior. It comes down to patterns, repeatability, observations, reliability, all, you know, all my six signs of, of behavior prediction come down to what can I reasonably expect you're going to do in every single situation in all these different lanes in your life, you know, whether it's as a spouse or whether as a coworker, whether as a, a boss, whether as a subordinate, whether as a pilot uh, or a motorist driving down the road. All these are totally different lanes of trust than, than just a carte blanche, you can trust them or not. You know, and so a lot of times I like to try, then those things are rational. Those observations are rational behaviors that you can observe. And that's what I'm talking about when I'm saying rational behaviors for trustworthiness, because that keeps it very cognitive and keeps you from thinking and equating liking someone because you have overlapping um, priorities, you have overlapping interests, you have a chemistry with them. Um, you like their behaviors. You like how they look. You like their nonverbals. You like how they dress. You know, all these things go into liking someone which is not rational. <laughs> it's, it's just our, our emotional connection we have, you know? So that's why I kind of keep those things bifurcated, but the, yeah, they can overlap. I also want to caveat on that is emotion is incredibly important because it is the most important thing we do. Because I also say in, in the book, you know, the other part is, you know, it's dichotomy between um, love and fear, you know, because fear is the, the fear is bedrock for all the irrational behaviors we do. And but love is, you know, the manifestation of the, the opposite. It makes that connection. Matter of fact, both the code of trust, my rapport book and this comes down to really deep seated empathy. And you can only experience empathy if you're willing to open yourself up to how the other person is emotionally experiencing life from their point of view and their standpoint and their actions. And so, yes, you do need the emotional side, but for me, it's the emotion of understanding how they see the world so I can understand and make that connection. To me, you know, emotions are, that's, that's a big part of what differentiates us from the psychopaths, right? Is that ability to empathize oh, yeah. with another person yep. um, is that emotional connection. And it's, if we are repressing emotions and saying, no, you know, we don't want to go with the emotional stuff, crazy stuff can start to happen. And, and that's a great word you just used, repress emotions. No, we don't want to repress emotions at all. We just want to understand them and know exactly how to act on them or not act on them. That's all. Right. If you can understand it and work through it and, and it's neither good or bad, then whatever it is, it just is. Matter of fact, you know, talking about that, here's the one of the other greatest tools I think is important for a leader to have and anyone in life to have, and that's a loving critic. You know, someone who deeply cares about you and your life and what you're doing, but ma maintains a great objectivity for you. So in other words, they're your greatest teachers, mentors, and guides, and your loving critics. So they're objective yet caring. And so that way, you know, when you are emotionally tied to the outcome of the things you're doing, you really, really need someone to bounce that off of someone who can say, I mean, my wife is my loving critic and she tries like heck to catch me before I put social posts out before I write articles. Um, because she, I, she knows I can mess it up beautifully. Always understanding that my emotions I wear them on my sleeve. I mean, I'm incredibly, you know, comes to anything in my life. I, I'm, I, I get emotionally hijacked. I know I do. And I know the instances I do. And I just have clarity of knowing when I got to go through my loving critic as my filter to make sure before things get exposed to the world as a leader, that, that it's got a good check and balance in place. 
Well, now I could not have asked for a better segue into your handwriting, Rob, and then what you just gave me right there. Ah, good. <laughs> it's the fact that you know there's those times where you get emotionally hijacked. This is editor Teresa just popping in to say that at the first part of this handwriting analysis, I'm comparing Robin's first sample that he gave me a year ago, which was done in cursive, to the sample that he gave me this year, which was done in printing. Enjoy. It's quite different from the handwriting sample that you had given me for the last time that I saw you. How so? The sample that you gave me the last time. It's very angular and there's a lot of extension into the upper zone. It is a very controlled and sort of rigid, I guess, is the word for it. It really shows here that there is this authoritarian streak in you that you were still working with. When you look at your background, having that discipline is important. When we move into your printing sample, we have a lot more space. It's not so contracted and it's showing that you really are starting to open up a little bit more and let go of some of that rigid discipline. And the part that gets me is when we talk about the emotionality, you have these D's where they sort of flop over. This wood where you can see that the stem of the D really points to the right as opposed to going you know, to the left. Same with had, really drops off and goes over to the, to the right. And that D really does express that those emotions are starting to really be there for you, that you are, there's going to be these moments where it's like, okay, I'm feeling this. And like you were talking about, right, where you have your wife to draw you back and say, wait a moment. So this one really does show a lot more of the emotion that your handwriting did not. That's pretty neat. The other part about this is this one, it does have that space. So when we look at it, you really see a lot more of the page. The writing doesn't dominate the page. So it works together in harmony. Whereas when we look at this one, if the writing kind of overpowers your page, it's a little bit closer together compared to your printing where you can really see it's like, oh, there's brightness behind there. And that's just showing that there's a lot more balance. You don't have to dominate a room. You don't have to go in and feel that you have to be in charge of the space anymore. You're, there's again, just there's an easing of needing to be you know, needing to control the room. Yeah, um, definitely. We did this about a year and a half ago, you know, and, and you you know, so you reflect on what I've been doing in the last year. So I was retired also when we did the last one, but well, retired from, you know, the bureau doing my own thing. But in the last year, the, the amount, um, yeah, the growth I've done, you know, because life is a good journey, you know, so the stuff I've done in the last year has been, I've like, I've let go of a lot. <laughs> just, you know, I just, you know, you kind of, yeah, you just do. I mean, very reflective, very let go. You know, just kind of walk in the past, see what happens. I'm, yeah, I'm easygoing. Well, I always consider myself easygoing, more easygoing than I was. <laughs> right. I think you're easygoing as long as they, it's clear you're also a very fast thinker, right? Your brain is going very, very quick because that is speed writing. You've stripped it down to make it as simple as possible, though retaining an awful lot of legibility. For the most part, it's still very legible. Because, yeah, because no, no, but for me, you're right. My brain goes a million miles an hour. It is crazy. So I, so here's one thing I did discover. And so I don't know if it comes out in the writing or not. Um, I am what's called a kinetic learner and a kinetic thinker. I need to move in order to learn the best in order for thinking the same way. That's why when I discovered Audible, I do all my reading. I, I read so much because I walk a lot. And so I can only read when I walk and take my notes and think when I'm walking. And so when I had a little bit of a hip injury uh, about a month ago and I couldn't walk for a couple of days, I was psychologically obliterated 
because I couldn't, I could not, because my wife's like, why don't you just sit there and, re and listen to a book? I said, I can't. I'm actually incapable of it. I cannot sit and listen to a book. Well, if I'm not moving, it, it is, is very painful. So it's, uh, it was a fascinating discovery. That is, and it does show in your writing. Now, I wouldn't have known exactly that you were a kinetic learner, but I do know that from your writing that there is a difficulty there of learning in the traditional method. So sitting at a desk is going to be difficult for you in a traditional setting. And how do you see that? What we have is your M. The letter M is the one that kind of tells me a lot about your learning style. You chose to use lined paper. So, so any M you see, do you see how it kind of floats? It doesn't yeah. come down to the line. Huh. And when we see that, we know that, they're, that the person typically is not going to learn in the traditional way. There's going to be a challenge, whether you know, they need to have some sort of distraction because they're you know, fiddly, or whether they have dyslexia, or whether they need to be in motion like you were talking about. We know that they probably need a little bit of help and a little bit of a different situation to really learn and absorb it's it. It's amazing I got through the Naval Academy, isn't it? In some ways, right? And yet you also have, I mean, when you look at it back on that handwriting, right? I think you had a, a there was a strictness there that would have primed you for the Naval Academy. So it was, it was self-imposed. That was totally me. So grew up um, very not well off at all. And so started working um, to support myself and getting clothes and all that of there at a very, very young age. So grew up exceptionally self-reliant and self-disciplined. These really tall pointed extensions, like we're loved here, that really shows us the self-discipline that you had. So it's not really surprising that you ended up in the Naval Academy and that you succeeded. I think now it would be a very interesting experiment for you to try to go back into it. <laughs> you still have your self-discipline, but you are in such a different headspace. Oh, yeah. Much different. Well, because, you know, it's funny because, you know, again, back then I was a decently popular guy because I'm, you know, social, I'm outgoing, I'm gregarious, I, I enjoy people. But what happens is, and this is where I kind of started getting my understanding of the difference, the dichotomy of, of power and leadership, the popular tend to be the powerful because, but it's also all about self. It's about look at me, look at me, look at me. And that generally puts you in positions where adults are going to put you in a leadership position because then they are naturally then assuming that you're a leader because you would attract attention of people and you become an influencer. Well, that's influencers are about self, you know, but then when you're actually placed in real leadership positions where you actually have to focus on others and be a resource for others and not yourself, it'll fail majestically. And so that, and so having to be self-reliant at a young age gives you that, that self, that sense of higher sense of self, not, you know, not in a egotistic or narcissist way, just a survival mode way, because you had to be self-reliant, you know, and then when you throw that in with the ability to be popular, again, it's, it's a, it's a magic formula for later challenges in leadership, which I faced. That's why I overcame him in the Marine Corps or started to anyway. Mm -hmm. It's so true. Just because you're popular and charismatic does not make you a good leader. No. All right. So yeah, that shows up now. Let's see what else did I see in your writing this time? Well, again, I see lots of variety in your form. If we take certain letters, they can appear very different depending on what we're talking about. Again, your T's are, are quite different. You know, favorite here is very different from Christmas, which is really quite different from the T's in that. And almost every time you write that, you have these giant enthusiastic crossbars. So your T's are, you know, they, they really vary. And that just shows that quick ability to adjust to your surroundings. You're never going to be a fish out of water. You're going to be able to take stock really quickly and then adjust and move forward. Cool. Yes. One of the things that I thought was interesting 
and I'm not sure how it applies, and maybe you can help me with that, is the tea stems themselves. Because you can see how a lot of them really slant. There's like a bend in them. It's like a bowling ball is coming in from the left and it pushes over to the right. Right, right. Whenever we see a stem that's bent like that, sometimes we see it in the T stem and sometimes we'll see it in the extensions of like a, a G or a Y. In your lower zone, it doesn't really exist because the lower zone doesn't really exist. But we really see this bowling ball in the T stems. And what that usually means is that at the time of writing, you were feeling pressure from the past. Something was weighing on you at that point, and you're really feeling pressure from the past, maybe something that you're having to live up to, or there's just something happening in your life at that time. And it's interesting because you were talking about Viktor Frankl, who was a concentration camp survivor. And when you look at his writing, it's actually the opposite way. His will bend going from the right over to the left in his writing. That's neat. You look at his writing. Yeah. And that's indicating, you know, somebody who's worried about the future. There's a future concern that's really pressing on him. Which when you think about it, for a concentration camp survivor, that idea of what tomorrow holds, there's always going to be an element of fear. And it's going to be hard to shape. But yours is the opposite. It's, it's showing that you're bringing something with you from your past. Yeah, well, it was a topic, you know you know, talking about Christmas, you know, favorite holiday being Christmas, you know, with a family that didn't have much money. And my, my grandparents playing a huge role um, to make that a, a good holiday for me, because my parents were didn't have the ability to do that. You know, again, you don't know that at the time, you know, but, you know, looking back at it, you know, I really saw because they had no money either. I mean, my grandparents, I don't know if any of them, I think my grandmother graduated high school, maybe my grandfather made it to ninth grade. Uh, worked as a, you know, as a plumber and um, with his, with his, with his dad, you know, with a horse-drawn carriage. Um, I mean, it was, it was hard living where they grew up in uh, upstate New York as, you know, farmers and stuff like that. So didn't have much. And so, but they, they definitely tried to shower, shower it on me on, on uh, holidays. Ah, uh, there you go. So that would make sense. Yeah. In a good way. I mean, it, there's, it wasn't a bad memory at all. It was mm-hmm. a very good one. Powerful though, powerful. I, you know, does it, would it indicate powerful memory? Because it's powerful memory. The part that really shows a lot of emotion that was grandparents. But when you look at it, like grandparents, it really catches your eye. It's very different from the rest of your printing. Um, this is a little bit more thready. It's a lot more connected. So that really does show me that that is an, that is a memory that was really it's still very strong for you. Yep. All right. So the other thing, and I just touched on that a little bit, is the spacing um, that I see in your writing. So there's quite a wide spacing between your words. It does indicate that you do have a need to be alone. So while you could be an extrovert and you do enjoy people, you also really, really, really value and need your alone time. You really value your independence over any kind of emotional or social dependence. Yeah, I'd say the independence part. Mm, now, interesting that you chose that one. So do you feel that the alone time isn't necessarily something that you need? I wouldn't call it I need alone time. I need time. Because the and because like the, what I do daily for my own, you know, mental health and and you know, things I do for putting out content requires probably about three or four hours a day of me doing it. You know, you know, because I, I move a lot throughout the first half of the day. And part of my movement includes, you know, reading a couple hours, 
taking notes for a couple hours then going on social media for a couple hours, creating infographics, you know, like back here. Um, and that requires me not to, you know, not to be interacting with a whole lot of people unless you, someone wants to give me a like on social media. <laughs> okay. Um, but it, but it does require, and so it, it's funny that I, I'm definitely a, a massive creature of habit. So when I do have things pop up, because the, the time that I require to do those things, which is very good mental health for me as well, um, I, it, I have to really juggle around on making sure I get it all in. Um, so because I don't like missing any of the things that I've created a habit around, a healthy habit around. Now, the other thing, we have to spot the lie. Because the first time that we did this, I did not catch your spot the lie. Right. So I wanted another crack at your handwriting to see if I could spot your lie. The one part that I thought was really strange happens just right around in here. Most of the time your A will have a little bit of air and it's usually clear on the inside. You see how you make a nice little circle on your A's? Yep. Showing that you can, you're a good communicator and you're gonna keep confidences. And that's usually what your A is. Same with your O's. But here, your A's kind of start to disintegrate. We have the D going off to the side and college, collapses, starts high, goes low, yet we do have a letter here, the G, which should extend below the line and it doesn't, it's like squished into there. So I'm going to say, I think there was somebody that had some college education in your family. Is that your life? Nope. <laughs> oh, dang, I'm all for two. Oh. <laughs> you know, I say I'm 60% correct on these and 40% uh, I'm not, and man, that hurts. You're, 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 you're at least you're in the right story. Tell me what it is, Ben. Right here. Both sets of grandparents showed up. Nope, is only one set. One set. That makes sense too, then. <laughs> Granted, I am really good at hiding stuff like that. It's uh, so it was my mom's parents that would come over uh, and make the big deal. My dad's parents, uh, we would see them basically not until like February. And as well, there's a football game on, and my cousins were there. Um, but no, it was it was uh, it was my mom's parents that would come over. Until my mom, until my grandmom died when I was about nine. Well, there you go. You know, in the <laughs> see, this comes back to not doubting yourself because when I first saw it, I mean, this just jumps right off the page. This whole grandparents and your tea is so crazy. And it, I and know. So when I wrote this, I was like, oh my god, I just gave it away. I literally just wrote grandparents, and I like, oh, it's right there. She's gonna see it right in that grandparents thing. I I, I literally thought you're gonna zero right in on that one. But I said, and I was going to rewrite it. I was like, no, I won't rewrite it because that's exactly the way it came out. So <laughs> the funny thing is, is I totally thought that at first, right? And I'm like that T and I know that your T is your tell because the last time it was the, the abnormal T is the one that held your lie. Right. I'm like, oh, it's got to be grandparents. And then when I read through for context, I'm like, actually, that's probably just something really emotional. <laughs> and so I put it down to just, you know, really strong emotions. And I know it's funny, but as soon as I wrote that word and I saw how that came out, I was like, damn it. Yeah, I noticed it. I noticed it immediately when I wrote it. Yeah, yeah, it's quite uh, quite striking. Um, <laughs> well, thank you so much for doing that. Do you have any other questions about your handwriting sample? So you're saying I look like I'm a little more calm. That's good. Definitely. Oh yeah, you're way more calm. You're much more comfortable in your own skin, and there's a lot more balance going on. And only a year. See, life's a journey. <laughs> right a year from now imagine what might happen maybe your lower zones will start coming into play it's so funny i i handwrite so limitedly um so i wonder if that plays into it too it, it's so even when i look back at the you know last year's you know that cursive i did 
I couldn't even come. I was struggling so hard to write this year just because I'm looking at that. and wow, that's, that's really neat for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I couldn't even come close. That's why I had to go to my regular writing. Uh, Cause I couldn't even, I couldn't even manage that. Cause I, I just type so much. No, and this is what we want, right? We always want the one that you do. So Robin, what's something that you have learned recently? And I, I I've shared it throughout, you know, our chat today. And that was the, the biggest aha probably in the last like six months was the discovery of power. Mm. Um, it was, it was a little, it was shocking at first. Um, the 48 laws of power by green. Um, it was recommended by Ryan holiday as one of the first books. Um, cause I love the stoic, stoic stuff. He writes about, you know, obstacles away, ego's the enemy and oh, stillness is the key. And so I wanted more by, you know, him or recommendations, you know, for my reading list. And so he wrote, you know, he said, you know, the 48 rules of power and the, the word power initially was a little off-putting. And I was like, hey, well, you know, this great writer, you know, recommend it. So I want to read it anyway. And, uh, and thank gosh, I listen to things because it, it forces, I almost, I tried, I almost put it down like five times, but I have this thing. Once you start it, I got, I want to finish it. And it was enlightening. It was enlightening because I didn't really think of the world in terms of power. I always thought it was just leadership and leadership. It was a continuum. You either really suck at it and all the way up to you're really good at it. And you're always on this journey somewhere in between. But as I learned from Jocko Willink and Leif Babin and extreme ownership and later the dichotomy of leadership, most things in life are dichotomies. You know, there's a, there's a yin and the yang, kind of like fear and love. And so the dichotomy of leadership I discovered by reading this book is power. Um, because this book tells you it's, it's a narcissist guidebook on how to rule the world. And I recognized immediately a lot of my executive leadership in uh, the FBI. And the, and the behaviors they had were self-centered and powerful. Policies that are in place, both in my organization and others, that were centered on power, not leadership. And so then I, I went through this, this aha moment of power is abhorrent, bad, power is all bad. But then remembering it's a dichotomy because in most organizations, whether they're private or, or government, you cannot get a position of leadership without power. There, you, you, it's just a, a fact of life. Um, you know, I, I counsel and work with a lot of people, including my own son and, and daughter, you know, and myself and my own career, reflecting on it and reflecting with people now that are amazing leaders that could not have had the opportunity to lead had they not exercised some of the rules of power, which were very self serving. But the key is, is, and the awareness I came about, you know, that I'm that I, I have with this is that a great leader understands it, they recognize it. And as soon as they, if they have to use it to get the position that they need to exercise the beautiful leadership, they have to know, I got to turn it off. It immediately has to hit ego suspension. Now we have to lead and not focus on the next position of power. They have to focus on being the leader to move forward, to be in that resource. You know, like all the things we talked about today, you know, leaders solve the problems and challenges of those around them, their resources for success rather than themselves and their own promotion. Because what happens is what we've all experienced this. People will exercise power to get that position and then they never turn it off. They're just keep exercising power. And so that was my greatest aha was uh, the discovery of that dichotomy. And then I recognized it in myself. You know, that's why I recognized, wow, I now finally know why I failed at my first leadership position in the Marine Corps, because I thought my popularity was leadership. No, popularity is power. 
and was self-serving. And when my, my Marine Corps major said, you need to make it about everyone else but yourself, the statement befuddled me because I, I had no idea what he's talking about because I was trying to be popular and not a leader. So that's, that, that's probably the, the biggest aha moment I've had in the last six months of, of what I've learned. I love that because it's really saying power is a tool. Yeah, unfortunately it is. And, and yeah, and there are organizations that you will promote on merit of leadership. And when you, and you're, and when you're training people to focus on leadership and you ignore the, the, the power quotient in there, they're going to get frustrated as they're trying to gain positions to exercise their leadership when they can't. So it's, it's really understanding, know, knowing when and how, and how to most importantly balance that dichotomy and keep it in check. It's a great challenge. It is one of the greatest challenges in life. I think it's one of those ones that it's easy not to recognize it in the moment. Yeah. Well, think, think about how people are elected. Are people elected on leadership or power popularity? Popularity now. Right. And so do they know that's why they're being elected? I think so. I think that that has definitely become standard where they are all groomed with their images and just hopefully you can get one with morals too. And then, and then those around them dub them leaders and they start falling in love with the fact that they think they're leaders when no, they're just popular. It's a nonstop popularity contest with people no longer focusing on being a resource for the success of others. And exactly. Being. You know, history is a pendulum. It keeps swinging back and forth. It always will. You know, so you just sit back, watch a show and uh, don't get emotionally hijacked by it. And the most important thing ever, what we think in these areas, whether it comes to, you know, popularity and power and politics and masks and vaccines, it is a very, very small part of the whole of the human being that you're interacting with. Do not allow one thing like that to get in the way of any relationship with anyone that you have a good, deep relationship with. And don't allow, and don't allow it to rule who you don't want in your life. It's a very, very small part of thing. Get to know the whole person because there's a lot of beauty in absolutely everyone. Find it. It's there. I think that's where we'll, we're going to leave it with that. It's just everybody... There's beauty in everyone. You just got to look for it. Find it. <laughs> Find it. So thank you so much for coming on the show again, Robin, and sharing your views on le leadership and power and popularity. People want to check you out. Where, where can they follow you, Robin? Yes. Um, go to my website. It's peopleformula.com, all one word, right here, peopleformula.com. And it's all things death by Robin. Um, I have my online training academy. I have links to my podcast that I'm on. I have links to my own um, YouTube channel that I interview people on, my Instagram page, my Twitter page, my LinkedIn page. I put out daily thoughts of the day, most days of the week um, on the readings of, that I have, you know, you know, mingled with my own thoughts and observations, as well as articles, my newsletter. Um, I try to put out a boatload of content uh, of my lessons I'm learning every day in my journey so that other people can benefit from it as well without having to spend all their days walking like I do. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think the only thing that I have to ask you, who shot JFK? Don't I wish I knew. <laughs> A very disturbed person. There you go. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Robin. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you're wanting to hear more from Teresa and her guests, be sure to subscribe on the platform of your choice and follow her on Instagram at handwriting underscore PI.